let's start with Brock Nelson. Is a, we're apparently into Brovember. His team still doesn't have that really scary scorer. When the Islanders lose in regulation, boy, do they lose in regulation. I've gone a little too far with this now. Newsday presents the Island Ice Podcast with Andrew Gross. And welcome to Island Ice, Newsday's New York Islanders podcast, episode 118. Hi, I'm your host, Andrew Gross of Newsday, and you can find me on Twitter at A Gross Newsday. A double dip on this episode. First, Newsday's own Neil Best will tell us about his trip to Winnipeg and Minnesota as he finally, uh, Gets to experience Winnipeg. He sees a win and a loss in the back-to-back set. Um, again, like I said, Neil uh, completing somewhat of a career. I don't know if you want to call it a hat trick. Uh, something more than that. But he, he makes it to Winnipeg to check all the boxes on the professional cities across all the professional leagues. So congratulations, Neil Best, on your achievement. And I also chatted with Devils TV play-by-play broadcaster Steve Cangelosi of MSG Networks, with the Islanders' first game against the Devils coming up this week, and of course, some Andrews' answers. But like I said, let's start out with Neil Best as the Islanders returned from Minnesota with a 5-3-2 and mark after their seven-game point streak. They had gone 5-0-2, ended with a 5-2 loss to the Wild, on Sunday, on the back end of a back-to-back. And talking about back-to-backs, we have Neil Best on a back-to-back podcast episode. I, I don't know if he can do three and four, but he's, he's, <laughs> his record on back-to-backs is fantastic. And Neil, um, just wanted to follow up with you. You made it to Winnipeg. You made it to Minnesota. You made it back to uh to New York. Um, was it worth it? Did you have a good time? <laughs> no, it was, it was a good trip. Winnipeg was very nice to me. The, this thing got a little bit out of hand with my <laughs> making it all about me about going to Winnipeg. Cause I, for those who are not following my saga, yeah, I, I'd been, this was the last city left in the four North American leagues I had never visited. So I did request to go there. Andrew was kind enough to let, you know, take, take Winnipeg off his calendar. Let me go. <laughs> it was good. I mean, I think it got a little bit out of hand when, well, first of all, the, the, uh, the Jets PR people left me a very nice note about my, my quote unquote achievement, but I knew, I knew it had gone a little bit too far where after Sunday's post game, Saturday's post game press conference, Anders Lee walks up to me on his way out of the interview room and said, Oh, congratulations. I heard you've been to every rink, which is not quite what, not quite what happened, but it was very nice of him to like actually care enough to tell me that, which was, but at that point I'm thinking, all right, I've gone, I've gone a little too far with this now. (laughs) Go back to uh, writing about the Islanders instead of myself. (laughs) I mean, as, as most, as most, hockey trips are it's not like you spent a week's vacation in winnipeg you, you arrive on a friday you're out first thing sunday morning albeit with a, a little bit of a flight delay what what were you able to do and see in winnipeg other than a hockey game well no i, I actually well, first of all the weather was great it was like 60 degrees so many people have told me i did not have the actual winnipeg experience no you have not <laughs> and I got to, I, know, I got to walk around, and the rink is very nice. But my big outing was, um, I went to the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame and Museum, 
um, a must-see stop on any visitor to Winnipeg, although actually the guy there told me they don't get a lot of foot traffic. Um, <laughs> but, but, but Butch Goring was there. Andy Bathgate was there for Rangers fans. Um, I asked why Barry Trotz isn't there. And unlike, turns out, unlike the Basketball Hall of Fame, at the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame, you have to be retired before you can be in there. So Ryan Pollock and um, Barry Trotz are going to have to wait uh, to be in there. But it was good. It was I got a personal tour from the young fellow, a young sports journalism student who was working there. He showed me around and everybody's very nice. And uh, of course, pretty much everybody in Canada is very nice. So, yes, it was it was a great trip. And I lucked out with the weather. And the Islanders played a great game that night, a very Islanders-like game. So the whole thing was good. And most importantly, I passed my COVID test on Saturday morning and was allowed to leave the country and go back to the United States. Otherwise, we would be doing this Zoom from the <laughs> hotel room in Winnipeg. I, I forget what it's called now. I, when I, The last time I was in Winnipeg, it was the MTS Center. But I've always found that I, I, I think the two stops you've hit, Winnipeg and Minnesota, both very, very nice rinks uh, for different reasons. The MTA, uh, the MTS Center or whatever they're calling it these days is, is more of a coliseum feel. It's a little bit of a smaller rink. You're, you're kind of on top of the ice. And then uh, Minnesota, the XL Energy Center is just, you know, outside of New York, it might be my favorite rink in the league, you know, probably up there with the Bell Center in Montreal, just in terms of they do everything right from presentation to uh, how they tie it into the state of hockey in Minnesota with the, all the high school jerseys and the, and the displays. And uh, I'm, I'm good friends with the curator of the Minnesota wild Roger Godin, um, who uh, lived in Westchester, New York for a while. And he does a great job with the uh, Mr. Hockey awards and everything. But uh, what, what were your impressions of uh, the two arenas first? In yeah. Yeah, no, everything you just said is correct. First of all, the Jets one was built in between the two. It's now called the Canada Life Center, by the way. Okay, since, thanks. Since July. <laughs> um, the, uh, yes, that, that was built in between the two NHL franchises, therefore, and as a result, it's smaller than most NHL rinks. And it does feel a little bit, I mean, it's more modern than the Coliseum. But yes, it's a relatively small rink. And it's a, it's a good place to watch a game. The press box is like the Coliseum or the Garden or, or Montreal, where it's kind of, you know, out over the ice a little bit. Um, but the – yeah, Minnesota, uh, that is my favorite – I think I tweeted that my favorite NFL and NHL facilities are both in the Twin Cities because the Vikings' new stadium is great. But, but yeah, the, the Wild Stadium, the Wild Arena is really, really nice um, – and uh, yeah, they even have a dedicated media elevator with a sign on it that says, yes. this is a dedicated media elevator, which is my favorite sign in the NHL. <laughs> um, but no, they, it's, it's a very cool, and as you said, they, they really make it a point to um, remind everyone that, you know, more so than most places in the United States, obviously, uh, hockey is such a big part of the culture there, and they celebrate that from every level, youth on up. And it's yeah, it's a great arena. If if, if Islanders fans are looking for road trips, uh, yeah, I would recommend that one. You know, Winnipeg. You know, if you if you must, but um, <laughs> but but definitely definitely Minneapolis or well, St. Paul. Uh, that that is that is a place worth seeing uh, if you want to you know experience a road game. Now, did you stay at the St. Paul Hotel? 
No, that's where the team was. I was oh. at just a, I was at a residence inn, but the team was at that hotel. Yeah, yes, I was the, not there. The St. Paul Hotel is a very, very nice arena. It's right across the street, or it's a very nice hotel. It's within two blocks of the arena. Did you see the Herbie Brooks statue behind the arena? Yeah, I think I might have seen that the last time I was there, but no, I did not make that stop this time. Oh. I was so I was so I was worn out from all the sightseeing in Winnipeg. So <laughs> in St. Paul, I just kind of went to the rink and that was it. But uh, now, in the, the island, well, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say when you went to the Manitoba Hall of Fame, did you actually go with Butchie or you just no, saw no, his no, play no, there? No, no, no. But when when I got to, when I got to the game, I showed him my pic the pictures I took of his display. You know, so. Yeah, he he knew he was in it. He said, you yeah, know, he was aware of it. So. Right. And 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 you I believe you you did not realize his first name was Robert. <laughs> I didn't I did it's funny. I, I mean, since I've been following him, I suppose, since 1980, and I'd never occurred to me to look <laughs> to look up his first name. I just thought his first name was Butchie. But it turns out, yeah, I, I had no idea his name was Robert, but um yeah, he he's there. And like I said, Trotz Trotz will be there but he has to retire first. And I assume Islanders fans do not want that to happen in the near future. No. Now on this trip, uh, sightseeing and nice arenas aside, you sort of saw the best and the worst of the Islanders uh, during the trip, a two nothing win uh, against the Jets in Winnipeg. And then on the back to back, uh, a five, two loss to the wild two empty net goals at the end. It, you know, it really was a three, two game, but still, that was the game that the Islanders led 2-1 going into the third period. And then they give up, you know, the four goals in the third period. So what were your impressions of how the Islanders played during those two games and concerns or encouragement going forward as they look to wrap up this 13-game road trip and, and actually start playing some games at UBS Arena come November 20th? Well, I mean, you know, Saturday night's game was textbook. Islanders, you know, they got a lead and they just annoyed the other team to death and they were unable to generate anything. Then they add an insurance goal and that the other team can't, you know, Jets are a pretty good team, but they just couldn't do anything. Uh, and it looked like we were headed that way on Saturday night again, uh, Sunday night, I mean, uh, another good team. But yeah, you know, it's the, the if there's a weakness with the Islanders, which we talked about last year, it's that lack of some major offensive power. I mean, their most dynamic players, Barzell, is more of a playmaker than a scorer. And, you know, so they're up to one. You figure I start writing my story because I'm like, oh, the Islanders are up to one. They're going to obviously hold on in the third period because that's what they do. And then the wheels came off. They're at shot 16 to two or well, 14 to two before the empty nets. And um, and as ba the thing that upset Barry the most after that game was their lack of a response to a couple of quick goals. So once they gave up those goals, it was almost like, wow, this isn't supposed to. Matt Martin said it. Well, you know, this doesn't really happen to us the last three years. And all and it and it looked like they didn't know what to do about it. They, you know, Barry was like, we had no response, and that was basically true. So. You know, I mean, obviously it's one game and they've been playing pretty well. But if you're asking me for quote unquote warning signs, it's, you know, that this team still doesn't have that really scary scorer. And that's just what it's going to be. I mean, they have a lot of other things going for them, but not that. 
Yeah, well, one, one of the strengths of the team is it has been and it will be the goaltending. And you got to see Semyon Barlamov's season debut in Minnesota. You saw Sorokin's uh, shutout in Winnipeg. I know you always have goalie thoughts. So uh, give me some Neil Best goalie thoughts here. Well, I mean, f- first of all, I think that I don't think this is going out on a huge limb to say that when this season is over, I, I think Sorokin will have played more games than Varlamov and probably is going to be their number one goalie for, over the course of the season. Obviously, Varlamov's still going to play and they need him to play well. I mean, for his first game, yeah, he made a lot of saves. I thought he gave up a few too many nice rebounds, a couple of which hurt him. Uh, but for a guy who hadn't played since June 25th, I mean, he hardly looked like he was like, didn't belong. I mean, uh, you know, so I, I think there was a little bit of rust, but I think he's still going to be uh, a good, you know, good for them and important for them. I just think that it seems at this moment, as we sit here on November 9th, it's hard for me to imagine that Varlamov's their number one goalie over the course of the season. I, I you know, I just think it'll be Sorokin, but they'll both play. And yeah. then in the playoffs, obviously, who knows? Well, in the playoffs, Barry is going to go with the goalie who he thinks is, has the hot hand, which, you know what, is a little bit refreshing in this day and age of analytics overwhelming all sports that, you know, the coach and, and, and the goaltender department of Mitch Korn and, and Piero Greco, when all is said and done, they'll look at all the numbers, but they're going to go by the eye test. They're going to go with the goalie that they think is playing best. Simple as that. And to me, that's, that is refreshing. Yeah. Even though obviously the, I, I hope the, I, I would, I would hope if I were an Islander fan that they are doing all the proper due diligence with their analytics, which I'm, yeah, sure, sure. I'm sure they are. But the bottom line is the two guys in charge, Lou Lamorello and Barry Trotz, are obviously as, about as old school as it gets. So you get that mix of, of both, which, yeah, which, as you said, I think is, is good. And now the, the, the other thing you saw in Minnesota, it was the Zach Parise uh, homecoming game. And obviously the Islanders have uh, a bunch of Minnesotans on their team, uh, Brock Nelson, Anders Lee, who had both goals um, in that game. Uh, and, and Kiefer Bellows is also a Minnesota guy, although he's not playing right now. But it was the Zach Parise uh, homecoming game, and they uh, it looked like he was a little bit a hesitant and b a little bit emotional uh, when they in the first period during a stoppage uh, they did the tribute for him, which was expected. What what did you think of the tribute and how the crowd uh, reacted to Zach and how Zach reacted to the crowd? Yeah, I thought it was very well done and very sort of touching. I mean, it obviously meant uh, one thing that was interesting about the montage they showed to me was how much they showed of him off the ice at like community events and just sort of and sometimes just fooling around like it was very personal instead of just a bunch of highlights of him scoring goals. And the crowd was great. They were like clapping during the video. And then when it was over, it was standing ovation and play, you know, of course, stick taps from both teams and yeah, I think it's, you know, it's in the middle of a game. I think it's always weird for the visiting player to, he doesn't really know what to do, <laughs> but he, it's kind of, cause it's just strange, but, but he, you know, yeah, he clapped back to the fans and waved to them and, and pointed to his old teammates, uh, you know, thanking them. 
Um, yeah, so it was very, it was very well done. You know, in contrast to when he came back to the Devils, and I, I wasn't there. I, from what I've read, he got booed every time he touched the puck. His first time back with the Devils, as he said, that was a different situation. Uh, as far as him as a, he had a couple of chances in that game, but as far as what he's going to be as a player, I still don't know. I don't know what he's going to contribute. It's too soon to tell. Um, I don't know what he's got left. He, I mean, he's, it's like, it's just too soon to know what, what contribution he's going to make. Yeah, no. And uh, he, he had the, the, the point the night before, well, the, the last game I covered in Montreal, I asked him about, you know, kind of whether that might relax him or not. And he doesn't seem like he's squeezing the stick or, or, or anything right now, but, but, you know, he's, he's in a totally different role than he, He's been in previously in his career. He's a, he's a third liner, um, you know, which is weird to say because, you know, Jean-Gabriel Pajot often plays above what you would consider a quote-unquote normal third liner. But still, it's, it's a third line role. And, uh, you know, he's going to see some power play time, but he's not being asked to be a, a top six offensive production type of guy. And, uh uh, yeah, you, you just sort of wonder going forward exactly, you know, how much you're going to get out of a Zach this season. Yeah, I mean, it, well, and, you know, Chara, you could say sort of the same thing, I guess. I mean, these guys are, they're old, and that doesn't mean they can't contribute, but it does usually mean you're not going to contribute on a consistent basis. And, you know, there's a risk of injury, although I'm not, obviously, I don't wish that on anybody, um, but it's a risk at that age. And, um, yeah, I mean, like you said, right, the, the season is not going to be, you know, hinge on what Zach Parise brings to the team, uh, but I don't, I, I don't know what it's going to be. All right, and last one is, you know, and you mentioned how Anders Lee came over and congratulated you on his accomplishment uh, uh, in Winnipeg. The next night in Minnesota, he gets two goals. Were those two goals for you or was it for his dad's 60th birthday? <laughs> um, I did, you know, I did have that um, awkward moment after the game, after a loss when you have to ask him something positive. That's always kind of weird, but he, he handled it well. Cause I was like, I know you lost, but isn't it fun to score two goals with all your family and friends there? And he did, he did handle that well. That, no, that was not dedicated to me. Um, but, but again, I, you know, but you know, when he did that, um, you know, really what it is is an example of why he's the captain, right? I mean, he, he has a bigger picture in mind where even after a, after a game, he's going over to some schlubby reporter and saying, hey, congratulations. And, you know, it's the kind, it's just, it's, it's a little thing, but it's, to me, it, it shows, um, you know, a guy who has a bigger picture in mind, and that's why he's the captain. Yeah, no, there's a tremendous humanity about Anders Lee uh, that, that he carries over to all walks of life and his charitable contributions and just how he cares, which is what makes him a good leader. You have to care. And I think he I think he does. And listen, Neil, welcome back to the U.S. And uh, I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you made the trip. Uh, I'm glad you got to see Winnipeg and uh Thank you for uh, giving me a weekend off here. You know, I did, but I, I handled this Winnipeg thing badly because before I, I agreed to go for you, I told Colin Stevenson that I would go there with the Rangers in March. So <laughs> I, actually, I actually am going to be back in Winnipeg. 
in March, now that I know the lay of the land. And of course, it'll be 40 below. You know, there's there's other stuff to see in Winnipeg. Okay. Right. I, I think there's a casino on the way oh. between the hotel and the arena. So, okay. All right, Neil, thank you so much. And uh, I will see you November 20th at UBS Arena. That's a big day. I'm looking forward big, to it. That big, is big. Big day. And I'm and not even being cynical and kidding. That is a really, truly big day. And we will have plenty on the opening of UBS Arena uh, leading up to that date. And I'm sure Neil will be writing some brilliant columnage on that type of stuff. So, Neil. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you. So thanks again to Neil for his time. And before we get to MSG Network, Steve Cangelosi, some good and some of the bad with the Islanders. The good? Let's start with Brock Nelson, as we're apparently into Brovember. Uh, we didn't have a Brocktober, but we seem to have been starting off with a Brovember. Seven goals and in 10 games overall, and that included four goals in Thursday's 6-2 win at Montreal and a goal in the following game, the 2-0 win at Winnipeg. Obviously, it's been a collaborative effort between Nelson and uh, Anthony Beauvillier. Nelson couldn't have done any of that without Bo, who had the primary assists on two of Nelson's four goals against the Habs and a secondary assist on his first goal that night. Bo did plenty of the work getting the puck to the crease. And, of course, Nelson was good on the conversions and also uh, establishing position off the uh, left post, making himself available, and uh, just being opportunistic in swiping uh, the pucks into the crease. So uh, good for Brock Nelson and, and also good for Anthony Beauvillier. Barry Trotz, speaking about Beauvillier before the Montreal game, predicted a quote-unquote breakout season for Bo, although he did say he wasn't sure whether it would be this season or next, just that at some point he expects Bo's uh, production, his numbers to rise, and, and it's because, as Barry said, that Bo is no longer focused purely on what he puts on the score sheet. He knows he can contribute to the game even if he's not getting points. And, and as a result, and, and through Beauvillier's maturity, uh, Trotz expects Bo's production to actually go up. Uh, he has three goals and four assists through 10 games so far. Uh, also on the good ledger, you have Captain Anders Lee, uh, another Minnesotan like uh, Brock Nelson, uh, Anders Lee had two goals against the Wild, and that gives him four for the season. He's been strong around the crease, and that should allay any concerns people might have been feeling uh, as Anders Lee came off his uh, ACL injury on March 11th. Anders Lee looking pretty close to what we expect Anders Lee to be, and I know there's there are going to be adjustments, and he's going to get stronger and stronger as the season goes on. But this is certainly a good starting point. There doesn't seem to be any uh, uh, decay in his game as a result of that. Uh, what, what could have been a devastating knee injury, and in fact was a devastating knee injury. I, I don't mean to uh, you know downsell it at all, but uh, the, the fact that Anders Lee does look strong around the crease, looks strong along the boards has been opportunistic around the net 
uh, open for uh, getting rebounds in and, and, and taking passes there. Uh, those are all good signs. Uh, defensively, though, Coach Barry Trotz still seems to be searching for, for the correct defensive recipe amongst his blue liners. Adam Pellick and Ryan Pulak being broken up now seems more of a reaction to the other four than a reflection of how his presumptive top pair was playing. I, I know much of the focus remains on Zdeno Chara, but the Islanders need Noah Dobson to be stouter, to use a coach's cliche. It's about puck decisions to A, best protect the puck, and B, get the puck going up the ice as quickly as better. And, and you can say... Uh, pretty much uh, across the board, the Islanders probably need to be better at that. Um, but th- but there have been uh, some issues, uh, certainly with Noah Dobson, some turnover issues, um, certainly some issues with Dano Chara, although he did look more active in the offensive zone, but that's not exactly what you get Dano Chara for. And uh, so the, the, the D pairs are, remain... Uh, Pellick with Scott Mayfield, Chara with Pulak, and uh, Andy Green with Noah Dobson. And, and you, you know, 10 games into the season, you expect it to get better, uh, but you also expect uh, at some point Adam Pellick and Ryan Pulak to be reunited. Probably, as I said, I think on the last podcast, maybe after the Islanders start playing some home games and, and Barry Trotz can get the matchups that he wants a little bit better than he can on the road. Uh, Noah Dobson has three assists, no goals. And uh, there are two others without goals so far, and that's Kyle Palmieri and Zach Parisi. Uh, Those two probably stand out more than Noah Dobson not having a goal. And and we'll talk about Palmieri and Zach Parisi uh, more in Andrew's answers when we get to that. But first, the Islanders face the Devils on Thursday. It's their third Metro Division game before their season-opening 13-game road trip ends with a a back-to-back, and there's that phrase again, against the Lightning and Panthers Monday and Tuesday uh, as the Islanders return to Florida. The second game of the season was uh, against the Panthers in Sunrise, Florida. That was a 5-1 loss, and it... You know, Barry Trotz was talking about this the other day, too. When when the Islanders lose in regulation, boy, do they lose in regulation. Three losses, that's a 6-3 to the Hurricanes in the season opener, 5-1 to the Panthers uh, a couple of days later, and then, uh, again, the 5-2 loss to the Wild. Now, really, the the, the 5-2 loss to the Wild was more of a 3-2 loss, two empty net goals at the end. Uh, two long-range empty net goals, uh, I, I might add. Uh, and you'd love to see the Islanders be able to convert uh, when, when they're defending six-on-five um, with some of those long-range empty netters. They, they just never seem to be able to do that. But I, it, it was a bad loss because the Islanders led 2-1 going into that third period. And then two empty netters and, and two other goals, and uh, that's a four-goal third period for the Wild. And I, I believe, uh, not looking at the score sheet, but the Islanders were also outshot 16-2, to I believe, in the third period against the Wild. And uh, 
Uh, it just, uh, like I said, when the Islanders lose in regulation so far, and their three losses to the Wild, to the Panthers, and to the Hurricanes are, are, are to, let's face it, three of the better teams in this league, certainly. The Panthers just finally lost their first game in regulation uh, to the Rangers of, of all teams. But uh, the, the Islanders sort of, you know, have not, at least on the scoreboard, they have not looked the equals yet of some of the NHL's better teams. Although I will say that the two nothing win in Winnipeg, that's certainly a quality win. And I'm not trying to take anything away from uh, any of the other Islanders' other victories. I'm just saying that uh, the, the Hurricanes, Wild, and Panthers certainly were a bit of a step up in competition for the Islanders. And that's a combined, I think, 16 goals, if I'm doing my math correctly here. Um, 5 plus 5 plus 6, that should equal 16, unless there's some new math I don't know about. That, But 16 goals over three regulation losses is certainly uh, too much and unacceptable. But uh, uh, like I said, the, the Islanders are facing the Devils on Thursday. And to talk about the Devils and the Islanders, I caught up with MSG Network's Steve Cangelosi, the Devils' fine TV play-by-play broadcaster. And as I mentioned, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be joined by my friend, uh, who I got to know very well when I was covering the Devils. And uh, Steve Cangelosi certainly knows his way around the NHL. And with the Islanders and Devils uh, meeting for the first time this week, I thought it would be... Uh, a good thing to get Steve on, onto the uh, podcast to uh, kind of talk about that and what he's seen so far in the NHL. So, Steve, thanks so much. How are you doing? Andrew, it's so good to speak with you uh, for the first time in a long time. It is my pleasure to be on your podcast for two reasons. Number one, I've always admired the work that you churn out at oh. Newsday and your previous stops. But more than that, your commitment to the profession having what is the single longest commute of any beat writer to practice on a daily basis, which uh, that's that's an unverified statistic, by the way, but uh, I've always respected you for that. Yeah, well, I I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's it's a little different than driving down in Newark, you know, having to go over a couple of bridges and just Long Island, but uh, I I appreciate that. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I I certainly miss you guys around the rock. And uh, let's just start out um, going into this game. Uh, The the, the Devils are off to a pretty decent start, especially considering, you know, where they've been the past couple of years. Uh, You know, coming in at, uh, well, they got a game tonight, but uh, 5-3-2 and uh, as of uh, Tuesday afternoon, that's uh, that's above NHL 500. Have have they? You know how how have they been playing, and how is it meshing under Lindy Ruff in New Jersey? Well, I, I would say this: having them at real life 500 as opposed to NHL 500 looks good on the surface. I was hoping, particularly, for it to be a little bit better actually Andrew just from the standpoint that the NHL gave them this five-game homestand to start the season and the competition now takes a level up uh kicks in a level up I think with the games that they have in the next few days and the Islanders are certainly part of that a team that has its sights on contending for a Stanley Cup but the caveat I'll throw into that is this that through the opening 10 games of the season When you factor in that they have had Mackenzie Blackwood, 
who is clearly their number one goaltender. It's not a 1-1-A situation, in my opinion, for three periods total. And Jack Hughes, who is their top line center, in my opinion, for less than four periods total, then you take that 5-3-2 and two mark and say, okay, that's a base upon which you can move forward. Um, I think this is going to be a very telling week for them when you play teams that are hard to play against, the Islanders, Boston Bruins, and the Rangers in succession in three games in four nights. And I think we'll learn a lot about them. The fact that Dougie Hamilton should be back this week, either for the game Tuesday or the game against the Islanders, back to something close to full health is obviously extremely important for them. And I think that I, I see the formation of an identity, if I can say that, Andrew, that yeah. their strength is going to be from the goal out, assuming Mackenzie Blackwood plays the balance of this season healthy and Ryan Graves and Dougie Hamilton give them what we expect them to give them at this stage of their careers. Yeah, I thought those were, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Dougie Hamilton. Uh, you know, I voted him very high up uh, in the Norris Trophy uh, voting uh, last season. I thought he had a spectacular season with Carolina. Uh, I thought that was a great get for, uh, for Tom Fitzgerald and the Devils. And, and Ryan Graves, who I covered uh, with the Rangers as a prospect in summer development camps, and, and he certainly developed into a very steady NHL defenseman. Um, looking at the defense core with, with those two additions, I, I, I think, you know, that the, the top six are pretty clear, but how much depth is there organizationally in terms of the defense? Okay, so I do think you have, starting with Hamilton and Graves, two guys who are going to play this season more than they have ever played. In the case of Hamilton, he's going to play in all situations, and that includes penalty kill. It's a given he's going to log big minutes at even strength, big minutes on the, pen, on the power play, but I think you're also going to see him for the bulk of this season, a mainstay on penalty kill as well. Ryan Graves was brought here, I think, to complement Dougie Hamilton, number one, but also fix, help fix the biggest area of concern for this team last year. And that was a penalty kill that was ranked 31st in the NHL. Graves played a lot of PK in Colorado. And for the most part, he played that well. I like this defense core once Ty Smith shakes off the cobwebs of not having a preseason and starts to acclimate himself to the NHL game. That's been a slow process for him as he begins a very important sophomore season in the NHL. But talking about it one through six, this is a good group because the additions of Hamilton and Graves means that everybody else, Andrew, slots in much better. I've always been a Damon Severson fan. But for the bulk of his first nine years in the NHL or eight years in the NHL or since he's been in the organization, he's probably been asked to do a little bit more than he would on most teams. So now you consistently slot him in to that second pair on the defense behind Hamilton and Graves. And I think the minutes for him will be more productive. And by and large, I expect nice things from him this season a guy we don't talk about enough who the devils got last year in a trade from the washington capitals is jonas siegenthaler who doesn't yeah. have a lot of splash and dash to his game 
won't make uh, the Sports Center highlight reel or too many of those sound up clips on the NHL network, but rarely does he give you a dishonest, non physical game. That's a good pickup. And I can see him being a staple in the lineup, not some guy who comes out occasionally, assuming he's at full health. Beyond that, you've got players like Christian Yaros, who's injured right now, but I think who parks into that seventh defenseman man. And I think he slots in well there. I think this is a much better defensive team than it was when we last saw them back in April. When I left the beat, what the Devils, you know, probably the best thing about them was the speed they had on their roster. Now, uh, Lindy Ruff comes in and, you know, he's trying to build this defensive structure, much like Barry Trotz and Lou Lamorello did coming into the Del- into the Islanders. Um, is there still the speed element to the Devils game? I know Jesper Brad is a, a very fast skater. Nico Heeshear is a fast skater. I know Miles Wood is out indefinitely now, but is, is, is it still a dangerous speed team? The last time I spoke with a player about this, I spoke about it with Heeshear, and he said, we are at our core a speed team. Now, so much of the focus on this team in the opening weeks has been about the injury to Jack Hughes, but I'm glad that you invoked the name Miles Wood, who made news yesterday with uh, the revelation that he decided to undergo hip surgery, and you hope that they get him back at some point before this season comes to an end. Because the value of Miles Wood to me, Andrew, is is unique. If you want to say he's not a top six guy in the league, if you even want to say he's a fourth line guy in the league when he's at his best, that's fine. I won't fight those 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 arguments too hard. But what Miles Wood gives you is that element when nothing things going your way on a particular night. The Devils had one of these two games already. Case in point, they played the Capitals who came into the Rock. I think it was their third game of the season. And it was one of those nights, Andrew, where you're not completing many quality passes in the neutral zone or the offensive zone. You're not able to cycle the puck against a bigger, stronger team. And when you're down early, sometimes I think the only thing that really changes the tenor of the entire game is one brilliant dash of athleticism by a player on your roster. And Miles Wood is the player for me who's always been most likely candidate to do that. So you talk about this being a speed team. I think the identity is, yes, a large part that. But I think for the time being, it's going to be especially difficult to identify them as that with Hughes out of the lineup, probably until December at some point and Miles Wood out indefinitely. That is an issue right now for this team. Yeah, no, I I was, you know, Miles Wood, I remember his first couple of seasons in the league. I forgot which player it was, but someone described him like, you know, a uh, a puppy dog out there, if you remember that, and just the way he played because he was he he goes nonstop, and and it was part of the Devils' identity having him on the ice. Um, hey, Steve, I wanted to ask you this. Obviously, as you know, over on the island, there's just a large contingent of ex-Devils. Um, you know, <laughs> it starts you know both on the ice and off the ice, starting with Lou Lamarillo. Uh, you know, our, our friend Steve Pellegrini is over here in management. Uh, and then, you know, Corey Schneider made it his way into the organization. And on the uh, 
of the roster right now, obviously. Andy Green, the former captain, and uh, Zach Parisi is here this season, another former captain, and uh, and uh, Kyle Palmieri. And, you know, we always ask these guys about what it's like to go play the Devils, right? Mm-hmm. To go fa- I'm wondering, are there enough guys left on the Devils that it's still significant when they see some of these old teammates come in uh, that they get up to play these guys? I know Damon Severson has been around for a while, but there's not a ton of players. You know, Pavel Zaka is another one, but there's not a ton of players on this roster that that probably, you know, remember Andy Green or certainly not Zach Parisi as a devil. It's a great point, Andrew, and I think we see less and less of that as time goes on. And there are very few players that I can tangibly talk to about the value of the group that you assessed very well there uh, when they were New Jersey Devils. I I spoke with Damon Severson about Andy Green uh, a a couple of times. And and the thing that he says Andy Green taught him as a professional, I remember, is that sometimes the best play is the simplest play. And, you know, it, it sounds so cut and dry, but for some reason, players struggle to invoke that uh, at times. And that's what I think Andy Green brought to this team for 14 seasons. And uh, I, I do think it will, it, it will mean a lot to Kyle Palmieri to come back into the building and play this team with a full house. Kyle was a terrific double. Uh, yeah. There's no way around that. And, you know, sometimes these things are hard to contextualize when we always reference the great moments of devil's history. And so much of that revolves around the three big banners that hang at Prudential Center and the core of great players that mostly contributed to that. And then lost in the history of this team, I think, are guys who came in and were nothing short of fantastic devils for their contribution. Travis Zajac, I'm not sure if he decided to continue, would he have had the option to continue with the, with the New York Islanders? Maybe oh, you know more about that than yeah, I do. No, I, I think Lou would have had brought him back for another season if he had wanted to play. Um, it, the, the, the story we heard was that Trav had just come to a point in his life where, you know, he kind of said enough, sure. as, you know. Yeah, but Palmieri is a guy, I I mean, five consecutive 20-goal seasons on a team that was not very offensively gifted uh, for his time here, and he got to 30 at the pinnacle. In this group, that's an achievement, especially when you don't cheat the game the other way. It didn't surprise me that once Lou got him last year, that there was going to be a great chance of him becoming an Islander for a longer period of time. It's obviously a team constructed to win now. And I think Kyle is at this stage in his life where he feels he probably wants to win now. And he's got a few years now in this window to try to make that happen. Uh, Miles Wood is a player, if he was healthy, who I think would embrace this matchup against some of the guys that you're talking about. Uh, Corey Schneider is not likely to play against the Islanders no. against the Devils this season, but that's a player who meant a heck of a lot to the maturity of Mackenzie Blackwood uh, in the formative stages of his career. So I, I don't want to dismiss the importance of any of that, but you make a good point. I wonder when they hit the ice on Thursday night exactly how much that resonates into who. 
Yeah, no. I, well, well, let me ask this. I, I, you bring up Travis Zajac. Um, how much has he been around the Devils? And what, what's the update with Trav? I think it's a matter of time before he becomes a full-time, tangible, visible member of this team. I think they're working their way towards that. And I think that will be on everyone's timeline. I mean, there are factors here into who's on the coaching staff now. And it's a nice staff that Lindy Ruff has constructed. There is familiarity with Elaine Nasruddin, who knew the base of players when Lindy was walking in, as well as anyone in that group. And Mark Recchi, of course, is part of that as a forward group as well. I think you'll see that that role with Travis grow slowly but surely until we get to that point where he's a much more visible member of the staff than he has been to this point. But we're in the really early stages of this too, Andrew. We're only 10 plus games into the season and uh, they want him around. They value him not only for what he brought as a player, but, you know, for the kind of guy that he, it's such the right kind of man that you want rubbing off because he played all the hard minutes and never once complained for the longest time. And you want him shaping your young professionals. And this is among the two or three youngest teams in the national hockey league as constructed as we talk now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Trev, you know, uh, when he came over to the Islanders for that brief period, he wound up playing in the playoffs because Barry Trotz valued his experience and, you know, how he could put them in, in different situations. But uh, like, like I said, I mean, uh, my, my understanding was that Lou came to Travis about playing again. And, and Travis just pretty much said that, you know, he had, he had played his career and he was, he was ready to be around his children much more. So. Yeah. And Nico, he's here now fills a lot of that void for this team. Uh, Andrew, uh, and I just noticed this, uh, the Devils were actually the opponent for Crosby's first game back this season. And uh, look, the Penguins were on home ice. They had the last change and that dictates a lot of what the matchups are going to be. But it did seem to me that there was a concerted effort on the Devils part to get Heesher out when for years it was Travis Zajac who was going to take the bulk of that role and against most of the top line centers in the National Hockey League, whenever the Devils can get him out there. Player to watch for you just in this vein is Dawson Mercer, uh, the rookie who was an 18th overall pick in 2020. Uh, because if the early signs are what he's going to give this franchise long term, this is going to be one heck of a pickup, either as a number three center or something even more important than that moving forward. He's opened eyes as uh, a guy who just turned 20 a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's, it's, youth is a wonderful asset. And, and the Devils <laughs> certainly have, a, you know, a guy like Pavel Zaka is still only, what, 25, right? If, if Or 24, I would think. Um, yeah. So... Hey, let, let, let me ask you, uh, on the other end, I know, you know, you, you haven't gotten into the meat and potatoes of, of you know, prepping your, your Islander, you know, spreadsheets and everything. But from, from what you've seen out of the Islanders this season, does, does anything stand out? Um, does, you know, what, what kind of game are you expecting uh, when they do face the Devils? Well, from afar. I thought this was going to be a 1-1-A situation in goal. 
And is Ilya Sorokin telling us in this opening stretch of the season that it's not going to be the case? There are people closer to the team that probably have a better handle on that than I do. But you're talking about this stretch now where I believe he's gone 5-0-2 in the last seven games that he has played. Now they get Varlamov back in the mix and that's fantastic. But the commitment to, I, I think what Lou has done from my vantage point is identify players that he wants to be part of this for as long as this window of potentially winning a championship is going to exist. And that's a real open-ended question, I know. Marty Brodeur once told me that from the time he was uh, an NHL rookie and uh, a Calder Trophy recipient, uh, you know, 25 years ago until the time he retired, there was never one year that Lou had a plan of rebuilding. It was always, we're going to go for this now. So let's say the window is open for this team in high hopes for Islanders fans I know for the next three to four years or beyond that to win. I think that the contracts that he has dished out in that time, he's purely identi clearly identified. I'll use Adam Pellick as an example with a lucrative eight-year deal that he signed that I think is fantastic for Pellick, but that has to be earned. And uh, I, I think the identity of your team that you cover is so consistent with what Barry Trotz has attempted to invoke in all of the stops that he's had in the NHL. So there's very little surprise about how the Islanders want to win. But I do think they have the game breakers to balance that. Uh, I think that I would probably put them at the top as a favorite in the Metropolitan Division. And the playoffs are a tricky thing, but I don't know why anyone's confidence would regress from having made the Stanley Cup playoffs Final Four in each of the previous two seasons. There's no reason in my mind to think that they're going to be any worse than they were in the previous two springs. It's a fantastic game. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and again, it's so early in the season that, uh, you know, you – you take everything, you know, with the 10 games into 82, everything is sort of with a grain of salt. You can start seeing some trends, but you, you can't make snap judgments on, on what's going to go forward from this point. So I, I agree. I, I, you know, to me, this is a Stanley Cup or bust type of season for the Islanders. That's that, that's interesting that you would put it that way. I, I, I probably would look at it as it doesn't have to be this year, but they probably feel this is as good a chance as they might have. But you've got some smart cookies running the organization. And say that they can't tweak this to make it a better team by the time this season comes to an end or beyond, uh, I, I, I wouldn't rule that out. The combination of Lamorello and Pellegrini and one of the best coaches in the National Hockey League that's a group you would want navigating this very special time. Yeah, no, I thought it was uh, uh, on their part, how quickly they pounced once the Sabres traded Jack Eichel to Vegas, how quickly the Islanders turned around and traded Johnny Boychuk's contract to Buffalo. I mean, which was kind of a win-win because it gets Buffalo above the, uh, the cap floor, which they had to be, but it, it gets, the Islanders underneath the cap ceiling, and now they're accruing cap uh, space towards that March 21st deadline. And I just, 
the, it, it didn't surprise me that Lou uh, made that move, but I thought how quickly that that happened uh, said a lot about Lou's foresight, really. I think when you're always working, it's a continuous relationship with these general managers in which you are ready to make those decisions at exactly uh, the right time. And never once did anyone have the Islanders on Jack Idle or Jack Eichel or the Sabres radar, but it's a perfect example of even when you're not in the mix for something like that, there's a relationship that exists there with Kevin Adams where it can benefit your team. It's a brilliant move. I haven't thought too much about it until you brought it up, but that could play into something that they want to do before the NHL trend deadline that makes a difference. Yeah, no, and they, they have, I mean, I think all the expectations are the Islanders will bring in a defenseman at some point, and, and now they have cap space to do that. But um, Steve, listen, I, I, I really appreciate all your time, and I'm so looking forward to Thursday and uh, seeing you in person and, uh, you know, uh, uh, chatting with you some more that day. <laughs> I wish our, our paths were going to cross more than just a handful of times this year. Uh, you know, I, I understand the NHL had to make some adjustments with Seattle coming in this season, but I remember thinking to myself, Eight meetings against a division foe is a little too much, but four is not enough. Three is not enough in a handful of cases, too, Andrew. But I've enjoyed the chat. Thanks so much, buddy. And thank you very much to Steve Cangelosi. As I said, I'm looking forward to uh, catching up with uh, Kanji at, uh, at The Rock in Newark on Thursday, and uh, that, that should be fun. And, and now it's on to your questions with... Some Andrews Answers. It's time for your questions with Andrews Answers. A question from M.F. Farnado. Uh, and the question was, do you think it's a concern that Parisi and Palmieri haven't started scoring goals yet? Uh, they have seven points in total, yet they haven't found that goal. Will they finally start to score? As I mentioned earlier, uh, Kyle Palmieri and... Zach Parise, both do not have goals yet. Um, a little bit different. Palmieri does have five assists. Parise, uh, I believe, just has that one assist. And, and Kyle Palmieri, uh, since Barry Trotz flip-flopped him with Josh Bailey, uh, I think he's been a, a, a good addition to the Brock Nelson line with Anthony Beauvillier. We talked before uh, about how good Bo has been with Brock, uh, especially over... Uh, in that one game in Montreal and the expectations for Bo. And, and I think Kyle Palmieri's straight line game with a bit of an edge, certainly around the crease. And <laughs> I forget, I think it was Barry Trotz who was saying it, says, or maybe it was one of his teammates, I, I forget. But at one point talking about Kyle Palmieri, uh, they, they said something along the lines was, yeah, he has an edge on the ice and uh, off the ice as well. And, uh, you know, Kyle can be an intense guy, an uh, interesting guy to, to chat about, very passionate about uh, uh, the stuff, you know, certainly about his career and uh, the stuff he does with uh, veterans. And I'm talking about military veterans uh, with, uh, with, with his squad getting uh, tickets for those, for those people, those, those heroes, really. But uh, like I said, Kyle's a very passionate person, which has nothing to do uh, with him not having a goal. 
I, I, I probably worry a lot less about Kyle than I do about Parise. And what I will say about Zach, though, is Zach is just playing a different role for the Islanders than he's played, you know, certainly with the with the Devils and, and the Wild, where he was expected, if not to be a top six forward, then to be on the top line and to be one of the team's top offensive producers. And that's just not the case anymore right now. I mean, it, it has something certainly to do with the fact that he's 37, although he hasn't changed the way he he plays his game, you know, he's still a little bit of a, you know, wind him up and, and let him go. And he's, he's always got his legs moving and he's getting towards the crease and his goals are going to come, uh, below the circles and in the low slot area, um, when they start coming. But look, he's, he's being asked to play a different role. And, and if that means he only scores seven or 10 goals, uh, this season, that doesn't mean necessarily he, he was not productive this season. He's being asked, like I said, to uh, play more of a checking role, um, regardless of what you think of Jean-Gabriel Pajot and having Oliver Wallstrom on that line. And you certainly expect, you know, goals to come from Oliver Wallstrom, but uh, Pajot's line is also going to be asked to be a bit of a checking line at times. And uh, it's a little bit of a different role from Zach, uh, he's being asked for probably a little bit more defense. Although, you know, when if you come up with the Devils, uh, certainly when Lou Lamarillo was running the Devils, you know that you have to play defense. So I'm not trying to say that uh, defense is completely foreign to Zach Parise, but he's he's not in the top six. Although he's still getting power play time, and I, I just. You know, I, I don't expect Zach to go out and score 20 goals or, or, or perhaps even 15 goals this season. You'd like to see him get a couple here, and I'm sure he'll start feeling a little bit better about himself once he does get that, that first goal. But I don't think he's at the point yet where he's really gripping the stick. And Palmieri, look, uh, you know, he has not scored in the regular season since being acquired from the Devils. He, he just hasn't. What is it? He had... Two goals in the regular season uh, coming over from the Devils uh, last season and none this season so far. Um, I think the goals are going to come for him. Will he get close to the 20-goal mark, which should probably be what you would want to see from Kyle, uh, 20 and up. I, I know he's been a 30-goal scorer before, but I think if the Islanders get 20 goals from Kyle Palmieri, they, they'd be fine with that. Um He's going to have to start scoring, but I, I, the the way he's played and the way he's had some really good games, uh, getting the puck up ice and pushing the, the pace of play, I, I expect the goals to come. He's just around the crease too much uh, to not score. So uh, uh, JJ says, oh, with the new cap uh, space from the Johnny Boytruck trade, who do you think the Islanders target, make a trade now or wait? And, uh, you know, I, I would be remiss, uh, and JJ, thank you for bringing up Johnny Boychuk. I, I would be remiss uh, to go through this whole podcast without saying a, a couple hundred nice words about Johnny Boychuk. Who, let's face it, he was a heck of an Islander. He, he came here uh, the same day as Nick Letty. They came here at an important time. You know, they predated... Barry Trotz and Lou Lamarillo, but uh, Johnny Boychuk brought a lot of that culture 
over from the Boston Bruins, a lot of that winning culture that, that's, that's been very, very important to the Islanders franchise, certainly uh, since uh, John Ledecky and Scott Malkin have taken over as the ownership group and uh, brought in Lou Lamarillo and Barry Trotz. And, and I think uh, John Boychuk was certainly at the forefront of that. He was, he was always a, a good voice in the room. He was always a good voice on the, uh, on the, uh, on the bench, always talking, always had something funny to say, but Johnny Boychuk's future in hockey. Now, regardless of what he wants to do, uh, could be as, as bright as he wants it to be because Johnny Boychuk knows this game inside and out. He knows how to deal with people. He'd be an excellent coach if he wanted to be. I have no doubts he'd be an excellent executive if he wants to be. He just knows how to communicate the right way with people, and he gets it, and and there's a passion and a love for the sport. And as Barry Trotz used to say, the, the, the first two periods with, with Johnny Boychuk could be ugly as all heck, but you wanted him on the ice in the in the third period because he was a winner and he was going to do whatever it took to uh, to 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 win the game. So you could stomach some of the turnovers through the first forty minutes to get to the 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 third period in a close game and have Johnny Boychuk on on the ice. So uh, you know I, I know a lot of fans are going to miss Johnny uh, being officially an Islander. Look, as we mentioned with Steve Cangelosi, Johnny Boychuk's uh, the rest of his contract, and Johnny Boychuk uh, remains on long-term injured reserve. He, he suffered that career-ending eye injury. Wasn't safe for him to be on the ice, just couldn't see the ice well enough. Um, so this is his second season on long-term injured reserve. It's a paper transaction where Johnny Boychuk's $6 million cap hit goes to the Buffalo Sabres, the Sabres, as I mentioned, get over the cap floor after trading Jack Eichel's $10 million cap hit. And uh, the, the Islanders get under the $81.5 million ceiling. They had been uh, using Johnny Boychuk's $6 million as a long-term uh, injured reserve exemption to, to pay above the cap ceiling. But the fact that they're under the cap ceiling, and I'm not going to try and go through all the capology, but in broad strokes, it means they can start accruing daily cap space uh, towards the trade deadline. So uh, I, I think the numbers I saw uh, through either Puckpedia or capfriendly.com, uh, uh, both fine uh, resources for hockey writers. Um, the Islanders are about 2 million under the salary cap the day they traded Johnny Boychuk, that will accrue. Um, so the, the actual space, uh, and I'm trying to think how best to describe it because it is all on, on paper and mathematical formulas, but it basically means come the, the, uh, the trade deadline, they could fit a $10 million contract under their contract, uh, under their cap ceiling based on, prorated uh, portions for the rest of the season. So the, 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 the salary cap space accrues daily and getting $2 million under for the Islanders it, uh, gives them a lot of trade flexibility uh, the further we go into the season. I, I don't think they target anyone necessarily right now. I think they play it out a little bit with Zdeno Chara, um, you know, and, and you still have... 
Robin Sallow down uh, with Bridgeport. I think you let him marinate, marinate and develop and, and get used to the North American game. But it wouldn't shock me if Robin Sallow is a, is a potential, say, starting either next month or after the New Year's to uh, to potentially be an AHL call-up and uh, to, to fight for space in the... Uh, in the top six, and as these next three questions uh, uh, go over, there's still Sebastian Ajo, uh, who has been the seventh defenseman for the Islanders on the roster without getting into any of the first ten games. Brian G. says, can Sebastian Ajo go to Bridgeport on a conditioning stint? Uh, Stephen Terrell says, do you ever see the defensive situation getting bad enough Uh, where Chara gets pulled for someone like Hickey, uh, Thomas Hickey, or Ajo. And Ken says, will Sebastian Ajo ever play a game as an Islander? And Sebastian Ajo has already played a game as an Islander, but I know what you're saying. Will he play one going forward? I certainly expect him to play a game going forward. Barry Trotz says he wants to uh, get Sebastian Ajo into a game, and I choose to take... Barry Trotz at his word there. I thought it might have come on a back-to-back, but it hasn't. And and maybe it comes, you know, you get the lefty Sebastian Ajo in there for Zdeno Chara, and maybe that allows you to reunite Adam Pellick and Ryan Pulak. That, that's, that's a thought as well. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly expect to see Sebastian Ajo get a chance here. Do I see the Islanders' defensive situation getting bad enough the char gets pulled for someone like Thomas Hickey or Ajo. And again, I, I think Sebastian Ajo gets the first crack uh, because A, it's easier on the Islanders' salary cap, and B, he's here already. Barry Trotz will never say he's pulling Zdeno Chara. But look, it's an 82-game season. I don't expect a 44-year-old man to play all 82 games. Uh, I, I think... As I've mentioned on the on the on the podcast, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure where the state of the strength in Zdeno's legs are uh, this season. It just seems like sometimes he gets uh, pushed off checks, you know, in ways I haven't seen him in previous seasons. So I, I don't expect him to play 82 games. Uh, you know, if he gets above 70 games, I, I think that's a lot for Zdeno Chara. And, uh, you know, I, I think Sebastian Ajo gets the first crack. Um, can Sebastian Ajo go to Bridgeport on a conditioning stint? He could, but I, I don't see that as an option. He's certainly getting plenty of work practicing with the Islanders. And, uh, you know, I know it's not game, necessarily game shape, but he's being worked hard by the Islanders coaches and I, I, I don't think they would hesitate to get him into a game. I, I don't think they would see the need for him to go on a conditioning stint. Couple of, we'll finish with a couple of uh, questions on, uh, on the, the cross-check and the emphasis on the NHL on calling the cross-check. And Flying M says, any chance that the, the cross-check enforcement has caused some of the defensive issues? Seems like they haven't been able to move guys around the crease like they have in the past, size means a little bit less now. Rees, they know Chara and Matt, professional contrarian or not, says ever since the crackdown on cross-checking, have you noticed any difficulty for the decor 
to adjust. And, you know, my initial thought when, when I saw these questions come across my Twitter feed was, I, I don't think so. I think players play and, you know, if a penalty is called, then, the, then that's the case. But, however, I, I think there there might be something. I don't think it's what's causing defensive issues and, uh, you know, trying to move bodies. It, it, it becomes a little bit more challenging, but... Let's face it, you know, you, you shouldn't be cross-checking anyway, and, and, and the more blatant cross-checks were, uh, were, were usually called anyway, and I know people are going to, you know, yell at me over that because of how many missed calls there are over the course of an NHL game. I'm saying blanket statement. Usually, if you gave a guy a really nasty two-handed whack as he stood right in front of the crease with the referees watching... Not 100% of the time, but probably 90% of the time uh, that would get called. And look, it it is incumbent on the players to adjust to how the games are being called. Uh, So I'm sure there, you know, if it's a point of emphasis uh, from the league, then I'm sure they've, they've heard it's been brought up in meetings. There's probably been videos on what the NHL is, is looking for and, you know, I, I, I still don't think it's in the back of the players' minds as they're there. But, yeah, you, you do have to adjust a little bit. Uh, you don't want to put your team down a man. I, I don't think that's what's causing some of the defensive issues. I, I see other things. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, you know, more it's more inability to, to, to connect on some passes or some you know, in the defensive zone or some turnovers or, or just not fast enough decision-making uh, I, I see as more of the issues. Physically, uh, look, I, I think the Islanders have protected the house fairly well uh, over the course of the season. And again, you, you, you have those three games with 16 goals scored. Otherwise, the Islanders, uh, before that game in Minnesota, I believe they were giving up the fewest goals in the league again under Barry Trotz, which is what happened his first season. So uh, I I, I don't think the cross-check is handcuffing the Islanders any more than it would be any other team, and and I really don't see it handcuffing them. But... uh, well, that, that, that's it for episode 118. Thank you for coming along for the ride and uh, listening. And thanks again to Newsday's Neil Best and to Steve Cangelosi of MSG Networks for their time. Thank you for their, your questions. If you want to catch up with any Islanders content, you can go to newsday.com backslash aisles. And until next week, when we all get super pumped, And I'm not being facetious when we all get super pumped for the opening of UBS Arena. Happy hockey, everybody.